The message today comes to us from 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 25, and it reads like this. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers... If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even if lifeless instruments such as a flute or a harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, How will anyone know what you said? For you will be speaking into air. There are doubtless many languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if you do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, if one speaks in a tongue, should pray that he may be interpreted. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray in my spirit, and I will pray in my mind also. I will sing in the spirit, but I will sing in my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit... How can anyone in a position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be given thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and of lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so Falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. These are the words of our Lord. 
Thank you. You can be seated. Well, this is an interesting passage that many people have questions about. Uh, before uh, we launch into the sermon, however, I want to give you some folks uh, uh, for whom you can pray, especially this morning. Anna Fretwell had surgery early this morning, and she is doing well. Uh, so we want to be praying for her. Bunny Piercy is in the hospital in ICU, recovering from surgery. Harvey Beeler still in the hospital. Dean Stevens normally attends this service, and Dean uh, and Sandy normally attend this service. He is also in the hospital, quite ill. Uh, Beverly Hollifield, has, her cancer has returned, and it has returned uh, uh, just with a vengeance. And so uh, praying for Beverly and for Jerry and that. And then uh, in the early service, uh, we had a young man, Austin Childers, uh, who uh, came. Uh, he, he is being deployed uh, today. And uh, so we want to be praying for Austin as he is deployed to serve in the military. His deployment, he got it uh, delayed just a little bit so he could be in worship today. So, uh, so pray for Austin. Uh, let's launch into this uh, interesting text, interesting passage. And, uh, and uh, as we do, Kara, if you'll raise the lights and that way people can see to take notes. Um, or see their see their Bibles. Um, the the interesting thing uh, that we discover here is many people look at this passage and say immediately it is all about speaking in tongues. Uh, when in fact there is a phrase that occurs five times in this passage, and the phrase has to do with building up the church or building up one another. Uh, last year, I read Eric Metaxas' uh, book uh, on Bonhoeffer, his, his biography on Bonhoeffer, and he has come out with a, another book this uh, year called Seven Men and the Secrets of Their Greatness. In this book, Metaxas is dealing with uh, seven uh, men through history. It's a book written to men, although it would be, as I'm discovering, a great read for a man or a woman. But he makes an interesting observation early in the book. In the introduction, he has this to say. He talks about how our country has been built upon an idea of heroes, that we have for many, many years in this country emulated great men and women, followed them, looked and studied them through history, and thought of them as being great. But he said something happened. It happened, he said, when Nixon failed, and when he did, and uh, uh, later suffered the consequences of that, that we as a people as a nation, as a culture, began to look at everyone then through the glasses of criticism. As a matter of fact, he specifically says we've even extended this idea backward through history so that much of what we hear about our past presidential heroes is negative. George Washington is no longer thought of mainly as the heroic father of our country, but as a wealthy landowner who hypocritically owned slaves. Many of us have forgotten the outrageous and spectacular sacrifices that he made for which every American ought to be endlessly grateful. This is not only disgraceful, it's profoundly harmful to us as a nation. He says Columbus isn't held up as a brave and intrepid visionary who risked everything to discover a new world. He's considered a murderer of indigenous peoples. 
And so what he goes on to do then is to tell the stories of seven men who uh, he considers with his definition of greatness to have made a significant impact not only in the United States but in the world. He says these men were tremendously used in their time and in their day, but we have grown accustomed to critiquing and criticizing rather than commending. And I would say to you that that same mentality has crept into church. We are easily, it's so easy to sit on the bow of our ship and look across the bow of our ship at another local church and see what they're doing and see how it's all wrong. See how we just wouldn't do it that way. It's easy for us to consider our own ways of doing things that aren't essential to the gospel and somehow create great lines of division and great efforts in criticizing others. It's easy to come into this place. Criticism comes natural, doesn't it? You don't have to try hard to poke holes in anybody or anything. That comes natural. And so what Paul says in chapter 14, first half of uh, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians is the church ought to be, must be about building up, not tearing down, building up one another. And he gives three ways to do that. First of all, he says, pursue love. Pursue love. It's in verse 1. Pursue love, he says. The word pursue means to run after, to chase after, to, uh, to chase down. Every morning at 7.30, I practice the sermon I'm going to preach here at 9.30 and 11. So you get round three. I practice in the nursery over there, the, the, uh, the nursery room. And this morning I was practicing the sermon when I was distracted. Uh, preachers get distracted. And I was distracted. I was looking out the window as I was preaching to the four walls when all of a sudden I saw this bicyclist go down Highway 70 with a bright orange shirt on. Well, that wasn't that unusual. He wasn't wearing a helmet. I didn't know kind of what his deal was. But not only did I notice him, but a large dog about this tall noticed him. When everything about the way he was cycling changed. Why? Dog pursued biker. That's why. I quit practicing, walked to the window just to take it all in. What in the world is this guy going to do to navigate? This dog literally came up to about here to navigate, and the dog was coming toward the road, toward the guy, and the guy was trying to figure out what to do when he did the right thing. Jumped off the bike, put the bike between him and the dog, and got the dog off of him and the bike. All right? That's what he did. You might say that the dog was pursuing, running wildly after, man in orange shirt could taste good, right? And so the dog is pursuing that. The point is, if Paul has to say to us to pursue love, love does not come naturally, does it? It doesn't. I know you may have a tendency to think that because of the latest chick flick you watched, it just seems so easy. But love doesn't come naturally. It's hard work. Love must be pursued. If you don't believe me, get married. All right? 
get married. All right, before you get married, this is how life is. You date. And when you date, you smell good. You look good. The car's always clean. You show up. You pick her up with your best clothes on, your best smell goods on, and the car is clean and shiny. And you go to a restaurant, and you sit across from her, and you look into her eyes, and she looks into yours, and you don't say anything for a moment. Then when you speak, it's rapturous and glorious and You can't imagine life being any better, right? You just can't. That's dating. Just last night, Wendy and I had to go to the hospital to see two or three people. And so we have this little deal. When we go on a date, I wear cologne. That's the only time I wear it. And so I have this one bottle. Shame to say it's the same one I had when we got married. And so... It, I put on curve. That's what it is. She loves that stuff. So I put on curve. We go out to get in the Jeep. She's been catering all day. She had a wedding. She's been catering. I go get in the Jeep and she went, whoa, is this the day? I said, honey, do you see kids? <laughs> We're in a Jeep together by ourselves. It's a date. And so we go to the hospital. We do the visits and then we go to uh, Apollo Flame. And we sit down and split a plate. Cost eight bucks seventy-five cents. I said, "You are a cheap date." <laughs> Had a really good time, just the two of us. But but uh, the reality is, it's like last night that was pursued love. Pursued love in the busyness of our schedules, in the craziness of her work, which just kind of heats up this time of the year. If we're going to get just a little window of time together, we've got to sit down and we've got to pursue that. It just doesn't happen. And that's the same in church. Love just doesn't happen. A church is to be about pursuing, going after, seeking after ways to love one another. Ways to show love to each other. We as a church must come into this place, and that's what Paul says here. Pursue love. The first way to build up one another is to pursue love. I love what Jesus says in John 13, 35. By this all people will know. You are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the way the church is known. We love each other. And when we love each other, when we have this love for each other, others look in and they see this love that we have for each other and go, oh, there's something different about them. There's something different about that group that meets there. You say, Jerry, what does this love look like? It looks like chapter 13. Chapter 13, verses 4 through 7 says, Love is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I said three weeks ago when I preached from this same passage of chapter 13, how do you know you're loving like that? Put your name in there. Where it says love, just put your name. Just say, Jerry, loves, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How does a church do that? Put our church's name there. Grace Community Church is patient and kind. Patient and kind. Are we? As we every single day here, every single day we get phone calls from folks who have great need. Are we patient with them? 
Are we kind with people who wonder where their next meal is going to come from? Love, grace, community, church is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on our own way. We're not irritable, we're not resentful. We're not angry with the truth. We preach the truth, but in love. We do not rejoice at wrongdoing. We're not glad when another church fails. We're not glad if another pastor goes down. That would be ridiculous. Uh, We bear all things, believe all things. Grace hopes all things. Grace endures all things. Pursue love. Secondly, worship intelligibly. What does Paul have to say about that? He says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Paul is saying tongues is a language spoken to God. And so when you speak this language to God, nobody else understands what you're saying. Paul, in this chapter, does not argue against speaking in tongues. He does not. He argues against unintelligible worship. Worship that doesn't make sense to the worshipers, and that is different. We'll get into details in the last part of the chapter next week, and some really spicy stuff in there, uh, but get into details about how to speak in tongues in church and what does that look like, but he simply is arguing here for intelligible worship. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies, let me pause a moment, Prophesize is not what we think of as foretelling the future. Prophecy in the New Testament as a spiritual gift is by and large speaking the truth into a certain situation to a certain individual, perhaps about a certain problem or sin he or she has. That's the gift of prophecy. And so what he says is prophecy, if anyone prophesies, speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Worship intelligibly. Worship, when you prophesy, you speak in the language of the person who is listening to you, and you say things that they need to hear. And once they hear, Paul says, they are consoled, they are encouraged, they are built up. Have you ever come to worship and thought you were the only person in the room? Like the pastor was only preaching to you? And you wonder how in the world did he tap your phone the night before and know exactly what you needed to hear? That's the Holy Spirit taking the words of the preacher, truth spoken in love, penetrating your personal heart with that truth, beginning a change in you that will last and last and last. That's what he does intelligible worship is critical ephesians 4 15 says rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love ephesians 4:15 notice what happens here the body grows up like we grow spiritually we become mature it makes the body grow it builds itself up in love this is the place for that to happen This is where we come and we discover, as the truth is spoken in love, 
We discover sin in our lives and we say the sin has to go. Let me say something to you. If you have someone in your life and they are slipping off, a parent came up to me after the early service and said, our son is just wandering away. We have gone to him. We have spoken to him. Please pray that he'll come back. The reason that she needs to do that is that's exactly what Scripture says to do. Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. There's a, there's a soccer team sitting here. Many of you are believers. If your team functions like it's supposed to, at some point this season, somebody on this team will go to someone else on this team and say, hey, I've noticed this. You need to check yourself. What's going on here? You won't go to the other teammate and talk about the person. You'll go to the person and speak to them in love. Does the other person know good if you come to me and tell me what somebody else is getting wrong? Tell them lovingly what they're getting wrong. The guy who trained me in my very practical ministry class in seminar said, in seminary said this. He said, here's what I do. I have a desk. In my desk, I have a book. I have a notebook. And when somebody comes in to complain about somebody else, I bring the notebook out. I say, I'm beginning to write down everything you're going to say. When I'm finished, you'll sign your name to the bottom. We'll call the person in. We'll sit down with the person. He said, it cut down on a whole lot of reporting. Right? Not many people want to sign your name to that dotted line. You didn't want to solve a problem. You wanted to cut somebody down. There's something in you that doesn't naturally pursue love. Guess what? It's in all of us. All of us naturally criticize. All of us naturally cut others down. We must pursue love and we must speak the truth in love. That's intelligible worship. Our number one value here at Grace is biblically based teaching and preaching. Why? It's number one on our list because the truth spoken in love will result in a changed life. Amen? Every time. If somebody's receptive to the word of God, they hear the word spoken to them, God will begin to, a change in them that will last a long time. Verse 3 says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation, while the one who speaks in tongues builds himself up. And then Paul illustrates himself. So I don't need to provide one, but let me, let me uh, look at his verse 7, his illustrations. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? All right, so we just heard Adrian, who's our youth pastor, but he can also play a guitar. And Patrick's over here, and he can play a mean guitar too, right? He's on this electric guitar, making it go, you know, he's doing that. Sounds pretty amazing, better than me, of course. So he's doing that. All right, we've got people up on the mountain playing different things and, you know, drums and that kind of thing. But if you walk up here and you don't know how to play one of those instruments, and you pick it up and you start to play, what's going to happen? Everybody in the room is going to, to internally, we're in a nice loving church, but they're going to internally boo you off the stage. Ugh. right why, why because you don't know how to how to put it all together that's what paul is saying so that's okay that's not that dire but his next illustration is a dire illustration it is where, where the rubber meets the road what does he say in his very next one and if the bugle gives an indistinct sound who will get ready for battle oh wow this is huge if you have one job and your one job is to call the troops in 
but you pick up the bugle and you really don't know how to blow into that bugle. And it's like, all right, it's just going to look like somebody swerved off the road. All right, there's got to be some kind of distinct, oh, it's battle time sound coming out of the bugle. That's what Paul says. Intelligible worship calls people to see themselves for who they are and Christ crucified for their sins calls people to action. He doesn't stop there. He gives another illustration. He has an interlude, verse 9, So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. And then the third illustration There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, try to excel in building up the church. If you're going to excel at something, excel at building up the church. And he gives foreign languages. How many of you have traveled somewhere where you did not know the language at all? All right? Been there. You feel so helpless, and you're completely dependent on someone who does. And when you speak to them, you sure hope they're saying what you're saying, right? You hope they're translating exactly what you're saying to the person who's speaking to you. I remember I I went to high school, and uh, I can't say that I studied Spanish for two years. I went to class for two years. In high school Spanish. I think that's how a lot of people do high school foreign language. They show up for two years. So I show up, showed up for two years. And then I went to college. And, um, and it was evident that I had only shown up for two years. Because when I took my placement exam, guess what I didn't know? Spanish. At all. So I end up in Spanish 101, freshman year, Spanish 101, and I still remember to this day having to introduce ourselves. All of us went around the room, and we had to say, hola, me llamo, and give our name. And soy day, where we're from, we had to do that stuff, right? And so it got to me, and I was just country as the day was long. I mean, believe it or not, more country than I am now. And so I said, hola, me llamo Jerry, because that's what I was called growing up, not Jerry, Jury. And so I said, Hola, Miyamo Jury, Soy Day Old Fort. <laughs> and my professor said, Could you say that one more time? And I thought, She likes me. And I did it again. And she said, Just one more. And I thought, She's making fun of me. I got it on the third time. But I remember taking Spanish, so I took 101 and 102, and I was one of those students who didn't know what I wanted to do, so I took 201 and 202 my uh, sophomore year. Come my junior year, I take Spanish 301, 302, 303, three courses, four courses that junior year of Spanish because I decided I'd major in the stuff. And so at the end of my junior year, the same professor that I had in 101 said, Jerry, we need to do a test to see how good you are. We need to know orally, can you... Can you do this? And I thought, you know, I showed up for two years. I've studied for three. Maybe I know what I'm doing. So I go in. I sit down. She begins to talk. She says, this is how it's going to go. I'm going to begin to speak in Spanish. You'll answer me. I'll, I'll speak. You'll answer. We'll just go back and forth. And when you can't talk anymore, you just quit. Okay. So she started and I answered and we were just having pleasantries, introductions, those kinds of things. She began, she continued to talk, I continued to talk and she continued to talk and I quit. 
And I thought, that was fast. And she looked at me, and uh, we could score one to seven, all right? One being, I, I know how to order at Taco Bell. And uh, seven, I, I'm good. I said, where am I? She said, two. <laughs> two? I've been at this for three years in college. I had showed up for two years in high school. I'm at a two? That's awful. What a waste of time. I'm sitting there thinking, I've wasted three years of my life. In the summer of that year, they contacted me and they said, we have a student whose name is Eduardo. He's coming in from Argentina. He speaks no English. He's going to be an exchange kind of student. He needs a roommate. We heard you don't have a roommate for your senior year. Would you room with him? Sure. I get a second phone call. I'm working at Wofford that summer. I get a second phone call. They said, we've never done this in the history of our school. We never planned to do it again. But we had hired a a new professor to take the place of the other one. The new professor just told us this week she's not coming. No way we could get a professor in. We need you to teach Spanish 101 and 102. I thought, okay, they're getting my two-level ability here. But I'll step in there and teach Spanish 101. So my senior year of college, I'm teaching Spanish 101 to freshmen and other seniors who failed. I enjoyed that part. Um, Power was was good. And so I'm teaching that. I'm doing all of that. I'm rooming with Eduardo. We're having to talk in Spanish. End of my senior year, we sit down, do the same tests again. Different professor this time. We begin to talk. She talks. I talk back and forth. Back and forth. We just kept going, you know. This is looking good. I'm thinking, wow, this is different. We talk back and back and forth. We finish. She you know, figures everything up, looks at me, and I says, where am I? She says, you're at a six. Wow. I go from a two to a six in one year? I said, how? She said, that roommate. Well, why didn't I skip college and live with an Argentinian? (laughs) I mean, that's what I'm thinking. All I needed was a roommate who didn't speak English. That's what I'm thinking. You're right. All this money, all this time, the degree in this mess, and I just needed to hang out with somebody. What if... When folks come into worship here, they don't get it because we have church language that they just don't get. We, it's unintelligible to you. That was Paul's concern with the tongues. If when I preach, it doesn't make sense, you've wasted your time. And that's on me by the way. If when we sing, the music is louder than the words, you haven't worshiped. And that's on Dave and our praise band. We must engage in intelligible worship. And when we do, the body is built up and people grow and become who God has designed them to be. So, this isn't all about speaking in tongues. It's all about building up the church. That's what it's about. Um, you build up the church by pursuing love. You build up the church, Paul says, by worshiping intelligibly. And third, build up the church by welcoming outsiders. Welcome outsiders. Where do we see that? 
Let's look at it here. Uh, he says, if I pray, and he talks about praying in his spirit, praying with his mind, and singing with his spirit, singing with his mind, verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than, than 10,000 words in a tongue. Wow, that's quite a ratio, isn't it? Five intelligible words, I would rather say, than 10,000 unintelligible words spoken in a tongue you don't understand. Now, who are outsiders? This is what the word says. No offense to you if you don't normally attend church. Or if you don't normally attend a church like this. Here's what the word, I'm going to give you the word in Greek. As soon as I say it in Greek, you'll know the word in English. Are you ready? The word in Greek is idiotes. Yeah. Candy Wasserman went, oh, why? What word is that? Idiots? What in the world is Paul saying? Why would he ever call outsiders idiotes? Idiots. That won't grow a church. I mean, what if we put out, you know, members expected idiots welcome? Is that going to draw a crowd? Maybe. The crowd we want. Who knows? Right? So what does he mean by that? The word means unlearned. That's what the word means. Unlearned. All right, so hear me. Hear me. Here's what it means. Is that in this room, and I am thrilled by this, there are people, if I were to say, any book of the Bible, you'd be there in a split second. You know where all 66 are. And there are others of you, you have to do what you do with every book. Turn to the table of contents and find it. Is that okay? Yes. That's okay. We delight that at this church... We have people at all stages in their walk with the Lord. Some who've known God for many years and some who are going to be baptized next Sunday night as brand new believers who've just come to faith in Christ. We delight in that. We delight that God brings, uh, as some people are going to join our church this morning, who've walked with God all their lives, and then that God brings some people to our church who don't have a clue what it means to walk with God. That's why we exist. We welcome outsiders. In other words, worship ought to be, are you ready, idiot-proof. It should. It should. You should not walk in here and wonder 
who we're singing to, who we love, why we're here, why we give our time, why we give our money, why we give our talent. It should be crystal clear that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died. And at some point in our life, he saved us. And we're forever grateful to him. And out of that gratitude, we sing and preach and give away food and put roofs on houses and walk with people through divorce and cancer and disappointments from teenagers and the challenges of singleness and the rewards of success. Why? Because of Christ. That's why we do what we do. And so we must be careful that worship never distracts from Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Never. It's not about me. It's not about whoever's singing. It's not even about this amazing set built by volunteers from this church. It's about Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. We pursue love. We do that. We worship intelligibly. We absolutely do that. We welcome outsiders. So what happens? Verse 23, uh, verse 24 and 25. But if all prophesy, speaking the truth in love, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. So what happens? You come in and you didn't expect anything to happen to you. And all of a sudden, some of you are brand new today. You've never been here before. You've been here two or three times and you feel like the sermon is just for you. The Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. He is convicted by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. You sit here and you wonder, does everybody else know? Does everybody else know what seems so obvious to me? The sin in my heart that seems so obvious. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face. So there's, there's conviction of sin. There's confrontation. There's confession. Falling on his face. He will worship God. That's repentance and worship and declare what that God is really among you that's our goal we want people when they come in here to say God is here God is in that place I can't tell you this I don't know a I don't know b I don't know c but I know one thing God was there God was working there was something different about that place that's our goal members of Grace Community Church that's our goal amen That's our goal. That's our desire. That's our heart. That's it. So Jerry, is this really work? Chad and Tanya Meese are members here. They were baptized last year. They were on vacation, shared this story with me this week, and I said, Chad, this so fits the sermon. i got to tell this story to the church. He said, tell away. They walked into a restaurant, I think it was uh, two weeks ago today maybe, it was on a Sunday afternoon, they walked into a restaurant and he said we, he was with his parents and, and Tanya and he said we could tell as soon as we walked in the tension was so thick in that restaurant, it was a s- small little seafood place, the tension was so thick you could cut it with a knife. 
He said you could just feel the tension and the anger in the place. He said, so we sat down. The girl sat us, and what she did, she said, it'll be a while. That makes you feel great, right, when you're hungry. It'll be a while. He said, sure enough, it took about six to seven minutes. Uh, another girl comes over and says, has anyone helped you? And they said, no. And so she, she, he said she, in a gruff voice, took their drink order. And he said, we remembered you saying something about praying for people. And so we said to her, you know, we're Christians, and we're going to pray. Is there anything we could pray for you about? And she said, yes. This place is crazy. <laughs> and she went into it. Two people called in sick today. We're stretched thin. We, everybody's just at the kitchen. They're fighting. It's just a crazy place. And he said, okay, we'll pray. So she left. And he said, what was interesting is that everybody had taken on the mindset, this feeling. He said, all the customers were just sitting there with scowls on their face. Everybody probably not getting their food in time, etc. Everybody was frustrated. And he said, we bowed our heads and we prayed for her, prayed for the cooks, and we prayed for everybody. And he said, Jerry, I'll lie you not. When we lifted our heads from that time of prayer, when we did, he said, all of a sudden, the people next to us started to talk to each other. You could hear them, conversation, laughter. He said, the entire climate in that place changed. Why? God's people, being God's people in a place of business can result in that kind of change. You better believe it. We underestimate his power working through us, do we not? We do. Why? Because here's what most of us would have done. Don't know what's taking them so long. Don't know when they're going to come and take our order. You are on vacation with nothing to do, right? We've sat here for three and a half minutes. No, that's four and a half. Don't know when she's going to come. So you're as mad as she was when she gets there. Rather than Christ, Christ in me. Christ, can he be in me in this place? Can he work through me in this moment, in this situation? He said another waitress came by and, and, and Chad said, my dad grabbed her and said, you know, we're Christians and we'd love to pray for you. He said, she spilled a little. We prayed for her right there. My dad did, he said. And so through Chad and Tanya, Chad's parents, Holy Spirit, just stepped into that little restaurant and changed the entire climate. All right, so I'm going to be intensely practical. Some of you, this needs to happen in your marriage. It does. Others of you, it needs to happen with the diagnosis you got this week. There's a soccer team I picked on you all morning. It needs to happen with you. Right? The Holy Spirit, just for you guys to have the best year ever. You need that. Others of you have some family things going on. The Spirit just needs to just invade. So here's how we're going to do this. Here's how we're going to love each other. Did this in the early service. And the reason it took you so long to get in here is because people spent so much time up here. So here's the deal. 
If you're in here this morning and you say, I've got a work relationship, a friendship, I've just got a personal thing that I'm dealing with and I need God to invade that, I'm going to be down here. I'm looking around the room and I see spiritually mature people. And when they see you come, they'll come right behind you and pray with you. All right? So those of you who lead Bible fellowship, you know who you are and you're able to pray with others, you come when you see folks come. But we're going to show the love of Christ like it needs to be shown in church. If you need prayer, there's no way we know it unless you tell us. You may have your churchy face on. We're saying get rid of that now. Pull the mask off. You need prayer. Come down. If you're here this morning and you need Jesus Christ, you're saying, I wanted Jesus like that. Please come. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's worship. Let's uh, Let's worship together. You come. Let's pray together this morning.